welcome to episode 15 of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur here to learn how innovators are creating outsized transformational social impact. Today's episode features Shin Choi, an amazing guy that has consistently beaten the odds throughout his life. He currently serves as Managing Director of Stand Together Ventures Lab and Vice President of Investments for Stand Together Foundation. Impact truly drives Shin's work in a more genuine way than we usually see in the financial industry. He's working with some of the most disruptive companies and organizations in the world in helping them scale and solve our toughest problems. Shin and I discuss the state of impact and how to measure it, the role of innovation across for and not-for-profits, and so much more. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. Here is Shin Choi on People Are the Answer. Shin, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for joining People Are the Answer. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Good to see you. Happy New Year. Yeah, likewise. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to get get us right into it. I know it's been a minute since we've connected, but we're just going to dig in. Um, so if you could just start off by telling us uh, where you're based and what your current role is. Sure. Um, so I'm currently based in Washington, D.C. And unlike many who say they live in D.C. but end up living in Virginia, I actually live properly in the district. Um, been here for a little while with my wife and my daughter. Um, my current role is actually twofold. Um, I began within Stand Together to help conceptualize and build what has now become Stand Together Ventures Lab. That has become our early stage investment towards social impact and excited to kind of get into that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, beginning middle of last year, I began working with Evan Feinberg over at Stand Together Foundation and helping to build our portfolio of disruptive social entrepreneurs, specifically operating in the community-based space breaking cycles of poverty. So really excited to kind of build that capability further um, and drive change. Awesome. Um, Well, you know, we're going to dig into some of this further that you mentioned. And also this next question, we're going to dig deeper later, but just on the surface level, you know, what really motivates you? You know, there are a lot of things that I think we could land on. For, For me personally, it's seeing incremental progress that build up towards real lasting change. And I think that's what really motivates me. And then the ability to work with amazing founders who have the passion and vision for what the future can be and says, you know what, I'm not going to let the status quo stop me. And really the ability for us to help them make progress and see what the compound efforts of that could be in any ecosystem, any issue area, man, that is what gets me really jazzed up every day. I love it. It's uh, it's exciting. It's exciting me for the rest of the conversation. Um, next thing I wanted to check on, I don't even know if we've discussed this before, but uh, <laughs> where did you grow up and what was it like there? Ooh, this is a complex question. Um, I grew up in two very different societies. You know, when I was I was born in Korea, raised in Seoul, uh, lived in a really interesting family dynamic. You know, we. Um, I live with my grandfather, my mother, you know, we can kind of get into some of that dynamics, but it was really interesting, um, highly competitive in Korea for a whole host of reasons. Uh, but then I actually moved to U.S. In, when I was nine, right before nine, actually, that was mid nineties. And, you know, with my mother really tried to re 
ground our roots in many ways in a new country. So a lot of my perspectives around social change, the bottom-up principles I've learned more recently actually came from a lot of those life experiences. It, just to put maybe a quick finer point on it, stand together as a whole, we address such wide range of issues, ranging from, including education, poverty, immigration, and so on. And I realized at some point in my life, I've had with the failures of how the society functions in almost every issue area that uh, we touch on. So in some ways, what felt like incredible learning opportunities for me and trying to navigate those barriers uh, growing up helped me uh, have an appreciation for why we do what we do and, and why we need so many more bottom-up solutions to help people across the country. Yeah. Um, well, that that's definitely more unique than some of my other guests starting out in Korea and moving to the U.S. at, at age nine. You know, where did you move to initially in the U.S.? And, you know, what was what was it like the rest of that time growing up until you went off to school? You know, we moved around quite a bit. So we landed first. At, I remember at JFK it was August 15th. It was uh, when you when you fly from Korea, you actually gain 14 hours or. Yeah. So when we we left on the fifteenth, we landed on the fifteenth, and we immediately came to DC because that's where our my aunt was, and we started having conversations around: should we live here? Should we consider Atlanta, where my uncle and cousins were, and I had another aunt and family in Dallas? So actually, the first nine months, my mother took me around to different parts of the country to see where would we most likely succeed in assimilating in U.S. culture. Uh, Funny enough, there was a period in time when I actually took on a name, Sam. That name has not stuck. Uh, <laughs> so we actually moved around quite a bit and ultimately landed right in D.C., right outside. Um, my mother decided that uh, we wanted to take roots with my aunt and uncle here. She began working in their business in D.C., um, which actually meant that every summer ensuing thereafter was spent from 6 a.m. to 5 p.m. every day working at a deli, you know, learning the ins and outs of that business. But that is ultimately, I think, how we landed in D.C. and more or less uh, stayed since. Yeah. Wow. So, you, so you've been a longtime D.C. guy. Um, you mentioned you briefly took on the name Sam. And uh, I'd be curious to learn a little more of that. Obviously, you know, I, I've met others from Asian countries that end up taking on more uh anglicized names, if you will. Um, and I'm curious, like, what kind of led you to do that? And, you know, why do you think it didn't stick for you and it does for others? And, you know, are you glad that you, that it didn't stick? This might be a bit of rationalizing post-fact. I think at the time we were just trying to come up with a name where like, Hey, how people are having a hard time pronouncing your name. <laughs> so what is this uh, simplest version of it? And somehow we landed on Sam in retrospect, we should have landed on Sean versus Sam. Right. And I think Sean probably would have stuck. Um, I actually thought it was an interesting question I got from a friend of mine that I met at church where he asked me, why don't you just keep your name? Like, why does it matter how others pronounce it? I actually said, you know, your individual identity is important. Don't feel like you have to lose that. And part of it is what we value within the society. So I, he, he was really helpful. I think this was when I was in fourth grade, actually. Um, so that actually led me to kind of revert back and found out really wasn't as big of an issue. Yeah. That, that's cool that you were able to maintain sort of that piece of your background and culture where others might not be able to. Um, I know that 
I and others in our network say Shin. Is that right or is that anglicized? Uh, it would be an anglicized version. Like if it's pronounced, if I go to you know visit my family, they will say Shi Hun. They'll distinctly separate out the syllables. But you know, it's been. I think Shin is more or less my nickname. I suppose at this. Uh, Perfect. I'll take it. <laughs> um, all right. So, you know, growing, you grew up in DC and then, you know, where did you go to school and, you know, what initially started your career out? Um, so I went to UVA. I graduated in 2008 um, in a pretty unconventional path. And this is probably one of those points as to why I focus on these issues and that um High school for me actually wasn't very engaging. I was one of the probably most disengaged students. My attendance records will indicate that. Um, interestingly enough, I had a uh, my stepfather at the time, James, and my mom allowed me to take a different path. Hey, it seems like you're really autonomous. You want to learn at your pace. Maybe you should get your GED. And maybe if you want to go to college and find that's the path you want to take, go for it. But is, you know, seek out the path that most excite you because right now it seems to be not working. So um, that actually led me to working series of retail jobs, management, and then realized, hey, I really just want to go back and define a, a more planful approach, I suppose. Um, so went to UVA and actually started my career thereafter in finance and mostly focused on government consulting, uh, working in the aerospace and defense world. And then migrated to Oliver Wyman, working in the civil aerospace space. Uh, but when we had a family illness, um, I think this was too early 2011, my mother uh, had a recurrence of her cancer diagnosis, and I decided to move back to D.C. Coincidentally, an old colleague of mine was at the time launching a new consulting practice that, hey, why don't you come help build it? And I think that's actually when I started figuring out I have a bit of an entrepreneurial book. I like building stuff. Because until then, more or less, my hypothesis as to why I was a glutton for punishment, I going into consulting all the time was, uh, I was a professional ADHD. Um, that experience said, well, I really like building some scratch. And I made a career going into advice for both advising clients, but also building new practices. So that was a lot of fun. But I had to make a call at some point, uh, particularly at the transaction when Optum was acquiring advisory board said, hey, do I see myself advising the clients that I've worked with so far, knowing that we're owned by a health insurance firm? And I just wasn't personally good, comfortable with that. It was a type of work that um, really transcended industry bounds. And I was worried that it's going to put me in a position to, where conflict of interest could arise. Um, so I actually went back to Oliver Wyman and had a great time working with the health and life science team in reimagining the roles of different healthcare institutions, such as insurance companies and hospitals, but I didn't really feel fulfilled. Um, because we're doing great work and we were aiming to improve healthcare, but we weren't making the material changes that dramatically impacted access or affordability or even way healthcare is even paid for that we have largely agreed isn't working well. So this was, 2018, actually, I remember flying back from Chicago. We had hosted an event in with some of the most innovative healthcare leaders to talk about where the sectors could go and had come across this post on LinkedIn uh, about the Stand Together 
innovation ecosystem. And I hadn't known anything about Stand Together. What is this innovation ecosystem? I couldn't understand it fully. But as I read about the org, I was my interest was piqued about their principles, how they engage, um, and it really resonated with me. So I said, you know what? I'll take a flyer. I sent some messages, and one conversation led to another. I came to realize through those conversations, my gosh, all these issues when the high school didn't work because of public school, when the immigration process is overly arduous to keep both good and others out, you know, we're really doing disservice. When we think about foreign policy implication of what it means for political dynamics in Korea and so on, I was like, man, this is where I got to be. And by the way, they're going to allow me to potentially build something from scratch. I was like, sign me up. <laughs> Yeah, I awesome. I, I love that story of when people like really get a spark um, in their work. And uh, for those of the for those people listening that don't necessarily know anything or aren't familiar with Stand Together, maybe you could give a little background. Yeah, well, you know, Jeff, you, you know us reasonably well, so if I miss anything, maybe you can help fill the gaps. Yeah, I Stand Together to me is probably one of the most comprehensive approach from a community perspective of philanthropic organizations in pursuing lasting social change. You know, we have from Stand Together view that in order to drive change, we need to move specific institutions to play their proper role, whether it be government, communities, business, and academia. And we have organizations that are engaging with each pillars of that society to help drive those roles to be more aligned and also to remove the barriers that get in the way of people from flourishing. A great example is criminal justice reform, where we're working on end-to-end, -end, whether it be laws in the books, how law enforcement engages with the community, how due process is afforded, how individuals even access their social connections throughout all this process, not to mention the in-prison environment that we hope will drive more restorative outcomes versus punitive outcomes we see, and full circle back to how do we support individuals when they're re-entering society. And our community of uh, philanthropic organizations addressing policy barriers, that laws that criminalize uh, behaviors or social gaps to due process rights and technology innovation that is able to provide that at scale, and re-entry work, whether it be policy, working across collaborations of uh, community-based orgs, and even providing those community-based orgs with different in-kind technology tools to drive collaboration, such as RiceKit, it allows us to take a really deep and comprehensive approach towards change. And I would say that's what Stand Together is, and frankly, what makes us incredibly unique in society. Yeah. Stand Together is incredibly unique, and I love that the aspect of it being a community of various organizations. And like no other group that I've worked with, I've seen this desire to scale things that are working, not just like, hey, we know how to solve the problem, we're going to solve it. It's, hey, who's solving the problem well right now? Let Can we make, can we help them grow? Can we help them solve the problem the same way in more places? And that was very refreshing to me. You know, I feel like so many organizations are just like, we know how to solve it. Listen to us type of thing. And, and, you know, I, I really like this approach. You know, there is a 
an important principle there, which is humility, uh, in that people who are closest to the problem and the challenges often know best. And we had a really um, interesting conversation among our Stand Together Foundation investments team today. Um, it was a salient question, so if you afford me a quick second, I'll, I'll share. But the question came about how do we develop conviction around an organization and what they do, why they do it, and how is it clearly a better alternative to other organizations we could partner with? We were going back and forth and having discussions around, well, what desktop research would allow us to figure it out? Is there a different way to measure the results to get greater confidence? And I think there was an, a eureka moment when one of our colleagues said, my goodness, we've built a community of social entrepreneurs. We've talked to over 3,000. We have brought over 200 actively in our community where we continue to support them on an ongoing basis. That seems like an incredible primary resource to understand what is happening on the ground. And I think that's when we start to understand, even us in our organization, where we're continually pushing on the business, how much more can we learn from folks who are in the work day in, day out to help us learn? And then therefore we can come along to support their growth. As opposed to, I think what you what you're pointing out, and I fully agree with is us coming with, oh, we think it ought to happen this way and let us fund you in that image. So um, continued work, but yes, I think that is certainly a way for us to get smarter, but be humble in the process. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good perspective. And so, you know, you mentioned you got kind of drawn in initially seeing a posting and then really digging in and kind of seeing what a great opportunity it was. And um, so tell me about it from there. You know, now you're, you're with partially Stand Together Foundation, you're doing Stand Together Ventures Labs as well. And so I'm curious how it's sort of morphed to where it is today. You know, on the, the Ventures Lab, we're continuing on that journey. So we launched, well, I joined in March. We formally launched with our initial investment um, July of that year. And we've been methodically proving out the value that we can create with this capability within the community. And what I mean by that is, you know, the first question we asked ourselves was, great, we want, we see the potential for early stage opportunities that are disruptive and could try lasting change. However, have we created a lasting capability within Stand Together Adventures Lab to continually identify the relevant problem statements, build meaningful networks to source relevant opportunities, and be able to keep that process going because the founders value the contributions we can make through a mutual benefits lens we offer over and over. That was, I think, the through line much through 2020 and early part of 2021. As we actually invested in early stage orders, we found that there are certain problem statements as much as we are uh, were excited to invest in those categories, teams weren't ready. They, they were still in the ideation phases or the market was still trying to figure out how to engage with the funders in this space. So we said, okay, great. We are now starting to define the right problem statements. Can we move further upstream? So we ventured last year with MIT Solve through a partnership to address this unbundled policing with a problem statement simply being, if we have law enforcement and ask them to be all things to all challenges, we're setting our law enforcement departments for failure. And from a public safety perspective, putting individual in harm's way. 
So we said, hey, what are the community alternatives that can supplement or be an alternative to law enforcement? Not to replace, but to say, by taking these things off of law enforcement plate, they can really focus on more serious crimes and public safety issues and mental health, substance use abuse, chronic homelessness, and so on can really get uh, be addressed through proper treatment and access to social resources. We're still in that phase. Uh, we just announced our uh, winners last week, and we're now moving into the accelerator phase where they will be developing MVPs and working with police chiefs, DAs, city leaders to pilot their solutions. And we're excited to kind of share that work and build a larger ecosystem of funders and innovators in advancing uh, this space. Um, last arc that I think we're starting to dabble in is, gosh, let's expand that further. If we see interesting opportunities when we don't yet see the inklings of an ecosystem that could be built, what is our involvement? We're still having those discussions, but I think all to say we're never satisfied with our progress. I mean, there are improvements we can make on every aspect I described, but the next frontier and how we keep building on this capability and continue to support different problem statements and, and entrepreneurs, uh, that's going to keep us super motivated throughout this year and, and on. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I mean, no matter how well you're doing or, or not, there's always a lot more work to do. And I was actually going to bring up that MIT partnership on unbundled policing. Um, I was fortunate enough to participate as a mentor. And wow, it was just incredible. Um, you know, I think some people think of Stand Together, they try to put them in a box of like being conservative or this or that. And like, to see just this partnership as an example, I mean, we had every type of viewpoint within the, that group, you know, from people on the ground in communities, starting organizations to end problems they've dealt with, to police officers, um, to people on the right, to people on the left. And there just isn't anywhere near enough of that in our society. So, you know, I commend what you, you guys in MIT did there. And to see the results so far has been incredible. And I can only imagine, you know, how much further you can take it. Um, I, I, I love that work. If nothing else for what you'd exactly describe, when we were you know, designing this in the early days and, and imagined what is the, not the comfortable, but the, the meaningful conversations that are going to be necessary, we were deliberate in talking to everybody from all different ideologies, all different perspectives, because diversity of ideas is what's going to move the needle for us at the end of the day. There is no one silver bullet solutions, as much as we would appreciate it, that will ultimately work to drive lasting improvements in these spaces. Um, you know, the feedback we have continually gotten from the teams are exactly that, which is it's been incredibly fulfilling for everyone to see their viewpoints respected, challenged respectfully as well. And folks are arriving at a they might not all agree, which is perfectly fine, but they now understand the breadth of conversations that are occurring and continue to participate in those discussions in various parts of their community as well. It's no small feat just to create that community and that safe space to have those conversations. I mean, as you know, in our society, it's almost impossible to have open conversations where you disagree these days. People just want to go straight to fighting when yeah. instead of just listening to each other's opinions and having a discussion and the fact that you guys were able to create a space for that, for 
this, you know, how many people were participating? You know, I believe throughout the incubator phase, we had close to 200 individuals who are signing up for those sessions and participating. Um, there was a, um, uh, a group that we were actually courting for participation. And I think there was a, for me at least, there was an aha moment when we said, gosh, you know, we may differ on what we think is the most effective approach or means to drive change, but let's be clear. The desire for community to be safer, the desire in this case for law enforcement to play, play its proper role, we're all in alignment with that. So therefore, we can experiment on the approaches. We can agree to disagree on that, but let's not question it, but each other's um, ethics or moral intent. And that actually helped me quite a bit as we continue to have conversations, because as you know, my goodness, productive conversations and progress can't happen if we question each other's motivations. So I, I found that to be really helpful. I'm not sure if that's the unlock, but um, I, see, I saw that through and through in how people engage in constructive conversations throughout their process. So maybe there's something to that. I, I really think there is for the greater good. I mean, it's it's such a divisive mess right now. And I, I've always thought that if we can get on the same page that, hey, we're all in, we're all humans, we're all in this for human rights or, or something to that effect, ideally. Um, so if someone is a reasonable person, you should be able to have a conversation with that premise. And um, I hope that what you guys created is the beginning of more growth uh, in the ability to execute things like that. Very excited about that as well. But I think you'll hear more about it as we continue on additional issue areas and problem statements where we could exercise this muscle. So, um, yeah, we're definitely not shelving it for sure. Yeah. And I mean, unbundled policing was such a, a big one to take on initially, and I, I love it. It's controversial. I mean, you know, there's so much rhetoric around the concept of what people were calling defund the police and like that doesn't translate well. Um, yeah for a variety of reasons. And even just the wording, unbundle policing, like I had been trying to figure out what is the way to say to people that police need to have less responsibilities so they can focus on the things where we really need them that they're qualified for. And unbundle bundle policing was, was really good verbiage. I don't know if that was you or MIT or both, but. <laughs> you know what? I will give that credit fully to my uh, program team and the CJR experts given their incredible year to the ground on these issues. Right. Okay, cool. So, you know, we're, we're talking about Stand Together Foundation. I want to, and Stand and Ventures Lab have come into the conversation. Yeah. I want to dig a little more into Ventures Lab, but if you could just talk a little bit about the core investment focus areas. I mean, we've touched on criminal justice reform. We've touched on, um, you know, poverty. Uh, could you go into some of the other ones as well? Yeah, happy to do that. Um, you know, on the criminal justice reform, just to round out, we go end to end uh, and we're looking for disruptive solutions, whether it be service or tech, and it's an active origination space for us. The next one that we're also really big on is economic progress. Um, and economic progress is a huge area. So we try to deconstruct that and we're prioritizing certain issues. So whether it be um, how do we remove the gaps between skill transitions that make it easier for individuals to transfer from one skill to another. Um, portability of benefits so that people have greater latitude to be able to choose the work and pathways that they find um, really exciting. 
alternative ways to finance, build, construct that ultimately lower the housing is, an, is a new area for us that we're starting to explore more and more. But economic progress tends to be a huge area where we say, hey, housing, pathways to economic uh, prosperity, whether it be even jobs, we're always looking for um, unique ways that are serving the overlooked job seeker segments and so on. Um, immigration is a really interesting one. Um, we've been focusing a lot on legal tech. Um, maybe TurboTax is the right analogy to start from, which is we assume the process is incredibly burdensome. Can we start to lessen that? If we start to think about, man, that doesn't solve it all, but what is the next digitized service version of it? And so on and so forth that continue to make the process more approachable and also affordable. In the education space, this is one that I'm really passionate about. Um, and also- Yeah, I mean, you where... talked about how you weren't necessarily such an engaged student. And I think a conversation that we've had and we've had in Stand Together Circles is that everyone learns differently and education needs to be more tailored to the individual. And we have more tools than we've ever had to do that. And yet we're stuck in this way of teaching that has been around for generations. I, I think in some ways, the desire to personalize education is occurring in both public sector, but as well as outside of system, right? Whether it be homeschools, micro schools, boarding pods. What we have found really interesting is this kind of new frontier where you start to see distributed learning and open question around, can that distributed um, learning innovation be bundled for a new type of school experience? Possibly. But regardless of format or financing approach, Jeff, I think you put the, you hit the nail on the head. We're looking for educational models that are hyper-individualized, that create diversity of options, knowing that you and I will learn algebra very differently. I'm terrible at math. And so I'll probably require a lot more remedial training. Um, <laughs> And we're starting to see more of that. That could be both mix of hybrid, you know, in-person, digital. Um, we see nonprofit innovation in this regard. Sal Khan launched Schoolhouse Star World during, during COVID where he's actually took on a online tutoring market where he can credential the tutors with the peers. And the learner's experience and competency expressed on that platform can be used for college entrance credentials, such as to University of Chicago. So I think we see more and more of those opportunities and whether it be for-profit or non-profit, we're excited to support and ex explore those uh, themes. Yeah, yeah, that's really exciting. I mean, you mentioned Sal Khan, Khan Academy. I mean, he's an inc absolutely incredible social impact entrepreneur. You know, I've had the the fortune of, speak of uh, hearing him speak and not speaking directly with him. I imagine you have, but... Um, it's he's such a great example of how we can make education work for more people. I'll just put a teaser for you with, and others that are listening. Um, there will be more things that we're working with him that continue to innovate. So keep a lookout for awesome. uh, announcements. Um, I believe the the next one I you know worth covering is probably healthcare. You know, we all yeah. healthcare is top of agenda. It's been for a long time. Um, whether it be access, affordability, quality, and so on. But when you distill it, what we want is people to be healthy and not to be bankrupted in the process mm -hmm. and also be limited in what we can or can't do. Um, our investment themes in that space is continuing to evolve, but one that we're also humble about. There are a lot of investors and impact-oriented folks who have been continually pushing for lower-cost care delivery. 
or trying to change how insurances can offer different ways to help healthcare trajectory. We think we're uniquely positioned in a few different ways. One of it may be, given our deep community work, how do we leverage the power of the community to lessen the disease burden for the, for the um, most desperately needed uh, segment? Often those are Medicaid cover segments, but there are out-of-system solutions that can lessen the disease burden, and we think we can work on that solution within Standing Together Foundation as well as um, tech-enabled solutions. Um, there is a uh, unique way for us to consider different ways to pay for healthcare. Um, we've been toying with this idea that we treat health insurance um, as insurance when in reality, health insurance is there to pay for almost any and all medical bills with some cost share. So what we're really talking about is healthcare financing. And we think there are some different product configurations that could be designed in that space. And we're in deep discussions with several healthcare providers around what are the innovation vectors that could really leapfrog you all in reducing the cost of care across inpatient and outpatient while improving on quality. So there's that's the that's a big media exploration we're doing not only with ourselves but healthcare providers and others that are in the space that are of course uh, smarter than we are uh, at the at the granular level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, what I'm realizing as we're going through the topics is we could probably do an episode on each topic, <laughs> um, and I'm sure the listeners will hear that too. So I'll try not to get too granular in my questions uh, on each initially. Um, you know, we'll dig into some, but. So we talked a little bit quickly about healthcare, um, you know, and we talked about immigration and, and other things. But, you know, one of the things I know is on the list is free speech and peace. And, you know, people could see that as vague or as, you know, aspects of it conflicting. So I'm curious kind of where the, the head, the mindset is at around that. Um, interesting. You know, maybe it's worthwhile aligning on or maybe sharing where our macro point of view is around free speech. Um, our perspective in the landscape is we're not as divided as a country as though we may feel currently. There are certainly issues we just disagree on, and I'm not discounting that one bit. But we have far more in common when, it cut, when we cut across issues. So if we start from that view that we are a lot more alike, we hold we, sh we share a lot of the values, then the question becomes, where is the pluralism breaking down for us, right? And I think our comprehensive approach to community is actually where we start to approach it, because it's not a tech solution, it's not a community solution, it's everything. Um, so maybe I'll give you some, some spotlights of that. From Stand Together Foundation's work, we believe in order to have a shared understanding that we're more similar. We can actually get to a point, we can have productive conversations, require conversations. And there are certain groups across the country that are able to convene and actually break down these mental barriers. And um, this is a budding area where we really want to build an ecosystem of these partners because they're incredibly local. You need the trust of local leaders and community stakeholders. So there's something we can be supporting each of these orgs and having these challenging but necessary conversations. Um, there are policy implications in terms of how we think about role of tech in speech and so on that our team has continued to think about so that we protect the right for individuals to express their perspectives. At the same time, we're able to allow for productive conversations to occur across a variety of mediums. 
And from an innovation within tech perspective, we're actually thinking of that investing theme right now. So much of the um, conversation and how we may formulate an opinion has changed in the last 10 plus years. So it is trying to figure out where in that individual kind of formulation of his or her opinion and understanding of the social space, could we change differently? So interesting enough, we so far, the community-based bets and investments to drive conversations, we believe is the most impactful. And we want to learn from that to see how do we take that at scale. Um, but I tend to focus really on protecting free speech and promoting pluralism as kind of our overarching theme in that space. Yeah, yeah that, that's the way to go. And I think we'll be better off for it. And kind of, you know, what you were saying took me back to what I, I believe we both heard Todd Rose saying once about how social media, like 80% of the content's coming from like 10 or 20% of the users. And, I, and I've cited this on a podcast before, um, but it's, you know, it's that loud minority has sort of an extra microphone these days. Exactly. And I kind of go back to my personal network, right? I, I have friends from all walks of life, as I'm sure you do and many of the listeners. And we probably often take the tone goes, oh, well, my friends who may have different views, well, they're not as radical. They're not as extreme. They are different. Right. I actually don't view it that way. I actually think a lot of our friends and our experiences probably are the norm. Extremes are extremes and often the minority. And it has a, a pretty significant anchoring effect for a variety of reasons. Social scientists are much uh, adept at explaining that than I will, but it's good to sometimes just step back goes, if we believe this to be true for entire society, what that means is, except my friends, everybody else's, you know, <laughs> off the rails, right. that right. can't be true. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's the way people need to start looking at it. And, um, you know, the last topic I don't think we covered that you guys um, focus on foreign policy and trade. For on the innovation front, foreign policy has been a less active space. A lot of our work there is to ensure our interest from a policy, foreign policy perspective is um, focused on realism and restraint. Uh, with that said, we know as we as the country starts to draw back from active confrontations abroad, we're now starting to see influx of service in men, men and women who need to uh, come back into society. And we're finding that over and over, whether it be due to trauma, whether it be gaps in services or any number of factors, we're not meeting our obligation to our servicemen and women. And veteran-related services and helping individuals transition from one phase of life to another is an increasing focus for us. And in fact, in 2021, we invested in a company called Shift that is deliberately focused on that, working with the community of service amendment and overcoming barriers and helping employers remove those hard constraints that limit success of veteran um, job candidates. So we're excited to see them grow. They're continuing uh, their expansion. And we will, of course, look for more opportunities in that space. Um, and furthermore, on the realism and restraint, we think this is a uh, going to be an ongoing debate. Um, how do we continue to keep that debate live and discussed and for us to thoughtfully bring other perspectives around what are the foreign policy uh, viewpoints that need to be deliberated. Again, that's going to be our, our broader community conversation as well.
Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. I mean, in the world that we're living in right now, commerce and everything in between are so global. So to truly have an impact, you need to make sure that you have the correct pathways um, to be in that global economy. Absolutely. It, the, Henrik, who has been really thinking through some of these work as part of his economic progress and other roles, um, is starting to help us think through it really with a sharp lens. So I'm really excited to see our group uh, get smarter and smarter on, on each of these areas. And that's actually really the, the best part about being here because nobody's ever satisfied with the status quo. They're just wondering what else can we do next? Yeah, definitely. Um, one aspect of Stand Together Venture Labs that I wanted to bring up is you know, there's a variety of these like funds that call themselves social impact. And I'm not saying that they're not, but you guys truly measure your success on impact and not on dollars. That's my understanding. Mm -hmm. So could you explain that further and also how you're able to do that? Yeah. um, Maybe I'll give two different investments on how we vetted it and um, even some of the feedback I got after it. one company is a portfolio company, so I can share a justice text, right? They were super early, but their problem statement um, was compelling. Millions of individuals are served by public defenders on an annual basis. In recent years, however, there's been an explosion of audio and visual evidence that need to be captured and digested for individuals to understand fully what happened. However, public defenders lack either the resources, bandwidth, or combination thereof to really process these files because these files aren't five minutes of what you need to see. It's hours of footage that you need to distill. Well, Devshi and Leslie, uh, who came from University of Chicago out of their computer science program, saw this gap and said, hey, you know what? We're going to build a public defender-specific tool that purely focused on what they need from evidence review, submission, and supporting in their work to provide due process protection. We were compelled by that because by, by, by many measures, some might say, hey, I don't think the market size is that big. There are only 1,000 public defenders. Well, how are they going to tackle the private offices and so on? But we looked at the data and realized, gosh, there are nearly 6 million people who are served by 1,000 public defender offices. And of course, no different from many markets, it's concentrated in some of the largest offices. So if they can actually go after the 20, 30% of the largest public defender offices, you effectively can serve 80% of the 6 million group, which is interesting. Uh, Commercial growth, that is contrary to how I think about it because we can actually get great impact by working with a small set of customers. Now, I say that because that's how we underwrote the investment from an impact because that's what we care about. We separately do hold strong optimism that the team will be able to break into the private practitioner market because of the incredibly active, uh, attractive price point they geared for public defenders who are often more budget constrained than, than private law firms. So we're excited for that potential in that regard. But um, I'm not sure if it would have fit the traditional investment criteria, even if an organization may have been impact oriented. Um, and to your, you know, maybe contrary to that, there was a, a moment <laughs> we passed on this investment. I might've shared this with you, Jeff, before. Um, I can't say the name of the company, uh, but they had approached us between series C and series D. Uh, they were a healthcare group and they were doing some amazing things in reversing a particular chronic disease that had been nearly impossible, but they had proven data and they were just rapidly scaling. 
And they came to us and said, hey, we really think you can help us expand, understand the policy, environment, and so on. Um, and we had the ability to invest on preferred terms. They subsequently actually raised at $1.2 billion, and we could have participated at $500 million. The simple feedback I got from my investment committee was this. Very cool that they were able to grow. Sounds like they didn't need our capital to achieve impact. Um, we would much rather miss out on those opportunities than have missed out on justice next. Period. End all. Um, it's a great perspective. It's a, you know, having worked with numerous client organizations in a variety of industry, few really articulate clear principles and even fewer live by them. I think Stand Together is unequivocally a very, very minority few that state and live by and day in, day out. And that I share oftentimes is incredibly refreshing. And I feel like as yeah. though I don't have to apologize for tough decisions we have to make because that those are our principles. Yeah. I mean, I've always been really impressed with how the principles are always showing. And it's, you know, oftentimes people put a list on a piece of paper and they kind of forget about it, move on. But um, I've really appreciated about everyone I've worked with at Stand Together that you know, they're always representing the principles of the organization. Um, and I think you raise a really interesting question. For us, when we formulated it, we started with a vision and point of view. What does success mean? And we explicitly pulled out financial exit scenarios or valuation lift or, you know, returns and so on out of our equation. We view it to understand, gosh, how likely is it to sustain its current path of scale and growth. And it is a factor, but it is not the thing that we make the decision around. It's good to know that it is likely to have good runway. Um, and more importantly, we had structured the investment dollars right now to you know, use our C3 to be recycled. So any earnings we get are recycled back into the philanthropic organization to continue its mission. So we've been over and over, if the, so therefore, let's use philanthropic dollars to make the investment. But if returns are true, let's put it back in the philanthropic organization because ultimately our goal for this capital isn't absolute returns. It is impact first. And if there's residual earnings, we'll make good uses of that when it comes time. And how do you guys measure impact per se? I know that's been a struggle for some organizations. Obviously, it gets even harder when you are taking the finances into account, but when you guys are doing that less so, can you talk a little more about measuring impact? Yeah. Um, maybe I'll build on justice tax and I'll offer another example. Justice tax, our view on impact is that access and usage of the solution is key to ensure that defendants have access to this tool. So where we've been tracking with DevShe and the team is, hey, where are you making progress with the specific defender offices? And we have a sense around how many defendants and individuals they serve annually. And right now, our goal is to understand sheer growth to make sure that the solution reaches the people with most desperate need. I think the second order impact that we're starting to get a better uh, understanding of is how is the uh, inclusion of these evidence affecting case outcome. That's a tougher one because right now some of the information is anecdotal, but we're having conversation on how to you know, learn that at scale, for example. Um, I will give a, an alternative example in the um, Be Great 
assemble. You know, you met Courtney in several of our, our events. And for those listening, Courtney is a CEO of Assemble to Be Great. It is an edutainment platform that launched uh, last year in 2021. And they have brought leading voices in the black and brown communities to talk about their professional experiences, their journey, what they've learned, and what are the paths that they individually took to help them get there. It's a little bit like masterclass rather than focusing on technical skills of any one individual that made him or her famous. This is more about the journey and the difficulty overcoming those barriers as well as the learning. That's all cool and good and well. I would say on that measure, our impact is um, likely assessed in two dimensions as we go forward. One, aggregate reach. We've done work with uh, UNCF and historical uh, HBCUs around how powerful is it when you can offer alternatives and how it influences choice. Um, but we think in the productized environment, it is not only important to showcase the variety of options that are available and help shed light on them, it is important to see what the users do in demonstrating the next step. So take, for example, if I went on a platform and I got really excited about um, entrepreneurship in the music business, it's great I took the course, but how do we continue that journey? Does the platform allow me to then say, okay, the next step I need to do is Maybe look for an internship, maybe to take a course, maybe to learn more about this space by so-and-so. So actually, our work with Courtney is continue to build out this library of amazing entrepreneurs and stories to tell, but then work with our educational partners to say, what's the next step? How do we offer that um, continuation of their learning journey? And I think we're going to measure impact in those two dimensions. How are we exposing individuals to a greater set of opportunities that they he or, may, he or she may not have been aware of? And secondly, how do we help them on their journey? And what do we see as a, an uptake rate? And if we can help people discover and start to pursue their path, we think it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, I love the way you guys look at things. And, um, you know, one thing that I just found remarkable, but, it, you know, it makes sense given that you're interested in impact is your willingness, your organization's willingness to help other groups that are creating impact that may not need your money or may not want money, whatever it may be. Um, and I just, I found that refreshing. I know people ask me that all the time. They, they said, you want to help, but you don't, but you know, you're not on our cap table, right? Um, <laughs> uh, I think we operate from the view because again, we're impact oriented. I, it doesn't matter if we're the ones, you know, Stand Together Ventures Lab is the one who invested or if, we had the right relationship, got connected the right founder. He or she went out to the world and developed a solution. Our win is to ensure that the market and society benefits from innovation in these spaces, not necessarily that it benefits, society benefits from innovation that we created. So we're very much about helping everybody in each of these issue ecosystems, I suppose, thrive. And if I can help with or without investment, um, just for those listening, feel free to reach out. Yeah, I mean, that's real and genuine. And I know maybe there's some people listening that are like, no, no way. Like, <laughs> why? But um, it's important to know that, you know, I've, I've seen it firsthand. It, it happens and um, Stand Together truly wants to create positive impact and make the world a better place. And if, you know, those listening, if there's certain things you don't agree on with them, that's okay. You know, they they work with 
anyone to do things that they believe in? Is that I, I forget the exact terminology that's used. Uh, we unite with anyone to do right. Yeah, unite with anyone to do right. I, I like that, and I think it's effective. Absolutely. And I would say this. Um, we're not – no organization is infallible. Just because we hold point of views, that means we are um, – open to change those views at a point of view as information comes through. So it, I would say if you disagree with us or if you want to have a chat and let's have a productive conversation, it, I, you may change our mind and, and we might, we're completely open to being challenged at any time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and it, that's a valuable aspect of the organization is just open-mindedness. There aren't enough open-minded organizations <laughs> out there. So I can appreciate that. Um, you know, you've talked about uh, a couple of um, examples of portfolio companies like Shift and Justice Text. Um, on the criminal justice side, one that I've also been helping out is, is RiseKit. And, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of theirs. So I wanted to kind of work them into the conversation here. Yeah, I mean, RiseKit's a, they're an amazing team. Um, for those listening, Matt, Strauss, and the team there is trying to stitch together a virtual tool that will allow workforce and other community-based organizations to collaborate more effectively um, as each help overlook job seekers. I think it starts from a really simple observation, which is, my goodness, there are a lot of workforce development orgs and support that a person may need, whether they're coming out of prison, whether they happen to have had gaps in employment and so on. Um, and we're not thinking about the, the individual. We're worried about the work groups, uh, the work uh, development groups and so on, but not really thinking about, well, how would he or she want to navigate through this? Are these the right solutions? Are they meeting the needs? How does the next person realize where he or she needs to go, right? So it's a, it's a simple idea, tough to pull off. I mean, they are working to break down legacy norms and behaviors with nonprofit organizations, community foundations, uh, employers and so on. So it is not without uh, what I would say long work ahead. But you know, I think that's why we're involved. We're we want to be the patient capital. We want to come along with expertise we have in the community-based organizations to help, um, and we want to offer expertise through our learnings to date in supporting these organizations. So um, it's one of those opportunities where it's different. We think there's a huge potential in the growth as they continue to serve this group, maybe even start to take risk around what a true pay for performance in this space look like and, and bring the what workforce workforce development groups would say demand side, more on the employers and the supply side, the skill side and the, the candidate facing closer in collaboration. So interesting thesis, Jeff. I love where they're working at. They're working super hard. They have moved from Chicago now into Memphis. They're having conversation in Dallas. They're uh, exploring ways to continue uh, their work in Denver and so on. So really excited to see how they're going to take off in 2022. Yeah, likewise. Um, love the work that they're doing. Appreciate you know that I, I met them uh, through the network um, that you guys provide. And um you know, are there any other portfolio companies that you're excited about that you think are worth highlighting for the listeners? I love all of our portfolio companies. They're all super exciting. How much time do we have? Um, right. <laughs> Probably I, not you enough. Know, <laughs> <laughs> I would make it just a, 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 a overarching statement, which is 
every one of our founders are so not only passionate about the issue, but understand what it's going to take to operationalize a sustainable business. And I, I say that because I, I think passion is amazing, but at least if we're going to make for-profit investments, we think long-term sustainability is of equal importance. And having folks who are passionate about that, want to engage with the community, want to get access to experts who can help think through that, has been really exciting. And it was a hypothesis that by offering this, that founders would partake, that they would engage. And seeing it prove out, I love all our founders. Um, yeah. So um, I think in the future, what I would love to maybe even showcase would be how our founders are actually working together on new vectors of product development or innovation we haven't yet even conceived. And that just tickled the heck out of me. Yeah. And like the network of founders that you're building that have the passion to change the world is um, a valuable resource. That's right. And I always learn every time they talk. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, one question that comes to mind as we're talking about valuing impact above all else, um, you know, where do the profits go from STD Lab? Um, we have a structure so that uh, all of the organizations, essentially 501c3, that have contributed to those investment dollars, we, of course, keep track of it because LLC membership and so on, we'll be redistributing it back to those philanthropic entities as uh, liquidity events or exits allow for us to return the funds. Um, and that way, those 501c3 orgs may choose to reinvest as continuation of work within Standing Together Ventures Labs and seeking more opportunities like that. It could be repurposed for uh, various grants, whether it be to academic institutions or community-based orgs. Um, but it, you know, we'll make those decisions when we're fortunate to be able to uh, essentially generate earnings. But yeah. that's the mechanism we're envisioning at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important to highlight that, like the potential profits down the road are going back into positive social impact. So, I mean, that's there's a lot of similar types of entities where that's not the case and that can cause some conflict. Um, but I mean, I got to love that aspect of this. Yeah. And we actually deliberated that exact question. And would we raise LP funds set expectation of double and triple bottom line? And I think our point of view then, and our point of view that remains steadfast now is, Let's not try to optimize on multiple goals. Focus yeah. exclusively on impact and don't create the structures and operations that distract us. Yeah. I mean, it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And, you know, we have a mutual friend, Mark Johnson, I was having this conversation mm -hmm. with recently. You know, incentives are so misaligned in general in so many industries and the economy as a whole. Um, you know, one aspect of that is we that started the conversation was private prisons and how they need to be, if they're going to exist, they need to be incentivized to get people out of jail and reduce recidivism and things like that. And right now they're incentivized for actually having people in jail and it's ridiculous. And so he and I were just, uh, you know, very high level discussing how do you change incentive models across the economy? And it's, it's a big task. <laughs> Man. I will give you 
a hypothesis at best. And I'm not even sure if I can even say this in this podcast because I'm speaking on Stand Together. So if I get my hand slapped later, we'll find out. Well, um, we, can, we, can, we can cut it if we need to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the incentives problem is interesting. Um, I am wrestling with this question on the healthcare side. Right, you you have similar third party payer problem. Not now, say third party uh, similar problem, but I would say misalignment and incentives just um, manifested differently. So, you know, in healthcare for a long time, we try to realign incentives by keeping insurance providers, etc., more or less in their space, but saying you you should do business differently. Right? That's the simplest way to put it. Instead of just building your business based on volume, maybe you should pay based on outcomes, right? Similar logic could apply in prisons, which is, hey, maybe there's a way to incentivize to those means. Um, in the long run of it, I actually believe in order for market to see what the possibilities are, there has to be a bold actor who's stepping up to take on that risk differently. And then um, we will likely see others saying, oh, okay, so that is a sustainable path. It is not just a, a paper exercise. I can actually execute that. And there is a way to even model, perhaps in this case, in the private earnings differential, so I, I can make the transition. Or said differently, maybe they can't make, incumbents can't make the transition, but new entrants can totally displace. But I think we have to think about it in that manner. There's a question of can you reform or do you need to fully disrupt? It depends, but I think I, I favor the disruption side, but that's just the type of risk tolerance I think I have. And that's certainly where I would lean, although if we can figure out a good way to create monumental change in the structures that exist, obviously that could be incredibly impactful. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a conversation that, that we could have for a long time, but uh, in general, I hope that we start to see a move to you know, not only in proper incentives, but sustainable proper incentives that actually make sense from a business perspective as well. I think your guess on disruption is probably right. Um, yeah. And I, I would offer, this is not a representative sample. There was a client I had many years ago, and I remember doing a strategy scenario planning with the executive team. And they were in the aviation space. And for a while, they had, and this is... 2000, early 2010s, drones weren't weren't a thing. Drone deliveries weren't a thing. It was being loosely contemplated. But this executive team was actually discussing how, how drones can disrupt their business, right? And they saw it coming. They were planning for it. Uh, they could have adju adjusted. They had the capital to even enter the space entirely. They did not. Uh, I think most actors generally will wait for a crisis, right? Crisis is a terrible thing to waste in some ways. Uh, but will organizations proactively disrupt their own model? Some definitely do, without a doubt. Is that likely to be the prevailing trend in the prison industry or health insurance and so on? I, I'm skeptical. <laughs> not unless you find a good lever to pull to make them do it, you know? It's, it's not, it's just, you know, people don't... It, even when they know they're wrong, we've seen some people just their ethics aren't there. And they're like, well, this is making me money. And I'm not changing it, you know? And so you're right. Disruption is certainly the way that we'll most likely have to go. But I like to be an optimist around that. I'm optimistic we'll figure it out to cause disruption. <laughs> right. 
Agreed. Um, you know, one thing that we, we mentioned potentially discussing, we, it's kind of come up already, is uh, how Stand Together thinks about the role of innovation across nonprofits and for-profits. Um, I, maybe it's an important... We I don't think we distinguish the two between innovation, between for-profit and non-profit. Oh, all. yeah, let's let's do it. You know, the, the, the most specific example is recidivists. Right, Recidivist is led by Clementine, um, formal Google product uh, manager. Clementine Jacoby, right? Yep. And Clementine leads a nonprofit tech company, and they're providing a level of insight and understanding around how prison data systems could inform the inequities around the parole process, um, gaps, even when individuals are not being released on time to make the entire correctional system function with a greater level of data and insight. That is a nonprofit tech that is likely to, that has a line of sight to be in almost every state in our recent, in recent, uh, in, in near future. Um, would we have approached the level of ambition, the level of funding needed and um, the overall expectation of investment because this is nonprofit or for-profit? Absolutely not. We believe that nonprofit for-profit is simply a measure of is there a sustainable revenue model? Yes or no. But innovation needed in this space is not tied always to a revenue model. So uh, we always start with the with the clean slate view is what is the problem to be solved that drive our investment themes? And then we start to look for all range of solutions, for-profit or non-profit, insofar that it addresses the gap that we believe is needed in society to improve it. And I think the mindset is shifting around this, but I think a lot of people, when they hear for-profit, to them, their mind goes like, oh, so they're all about the money. And, you know, they, I think people are starting to realize there is truly such a thing as profit for purpose. And I think, you know, maybe some people don't believe that. They think, Oh, well, profit's going to rule then, but it's something I truly believe in. You know, I certainly work on some for-profit organizations that I hope are going to fuel some of my efforts to create positive social impact if they're not doing them themselves. So maybe speak a little bit more to how impactful for-profit entities can be. Obviously, you don't have to sell me on it, but just to share. <laughs> um, I, I, I actually... Think the skepticism is well fueled by observable data points out there, and and I mean just to just share that a little yeah, bit, which is that's fair. I, there are certain organizations and businesses that have leveraged social impact more as a tagline as opposed to core elements of their product design and service strategy. Um, and I'm not going to go names, but you know, I will simply say when we look for impact that is a bit able to both define. When we deliver the solution, the impact it will have on an individual's life, and we can compare both the efficacy and the cost profile for that solution to reach and compare with market alternatives, um, it's very clear both why this is driven for impact, and secondly, if you one unit of impact, I, how it serves that person, equals to one unit of economics in terms of how they might be able to generate revenue, to me, that's perfect because we have a product and a solution that is designed for impact, that is monetizing each service delivery. And our entire goal is to scale that business to serve more people. 
And if that happens to be tied with unit economics of that product, whether it's paid by a third party or that individual, I actually would question the underlying premise that for-profit and impact can't go and that actually they're not, they're mutually exclusive consideration. So we tend to look for that, Jeff, where both the product design is inherently social impact oriented. And then we look for the profit motives or the revenue model separate from that say, is this an attractive alternative to existing market norms? Um, and we often believe that is also necessary for the type of market adoption because in the for-profit space, people choose to partake in these solutions and ask you both desirable from what it does in filling a particular gap and importantly, affordability. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's a great way to put it. And I think that uh, hopefully if anyone is skeptical about it, they'll, they'll start paying attention to some of these uh, entities that aren't just using social impact as a tagline and are, are truly making a difference. And for me, I mean, if you can create a sustainable business model for the impact you're trying to create, how much better is that than having to basically beg for money every year? So it, it is um, um, a question that we also get. And I, I'll throw out a third scenario, Jeff, that we haven't talked about, but I think it's squarely in our kind of investment sight lines, but many might discount. There are certain businesses that are not high growth businesses. It's just not. They're more steady, kind of linear, kind of similar to a mature market. But those businesses can actually have huge impact in the communities they operate. So just because we're looking at often early stage, but doesn't mean early stage and high growth in so in so far as it is high impact in terms of how we can the way it could serve the the um, problem space. So um, that's kind of a third dimension because. We've been getting a lot of questions about whether we are just a venture fund. We're not. We're actually a fund that invests in any and all solutions, often early stage, insofar as there's 100x potential for social impact returns. So when we keep going back to that definition, people are like, oh, interesting. You do a lot of venturing, but you're not exclusively a venturing fund. You could do debt. You could invest in real estate. You could invest in a whole host of things insofar as it achieves a 100x social impact goal. And that's really liberating. And it is a different way to engage uh, potential partners in the markets. So do you have a story of when you really saw how your work could affect change? You know, maybe some kind of epiphany moment that was like, wow, like I can really create some impact. You know, there are probably several moments, but let me give you one at each point of the journey. First one is I was a re, I, I was skeptical about the underlying premise when we started venture lab. Just completely honest, it just venturing was not a natural inclination for me. I mean, it, it is one that I was familiar with. I dabbled in in other ways, but not where I was super entrenched. And I was skeptical around could it really pay off? And that's how I viewed the the progress of recidivists as they were entering the COVID stages. It actually took off like a rocket fuel, because they had better data than almost any other public health officials or Department of Correctional officials around potential COVID impact on our population. They're able to model it, give feedback, work with each EOC. And I started to see their impact on number of days and years they've been able to stave off of individuals in prison. The number of uh, parole officers that are starting to engage around, it, 
what I would say, differences in decision-making that leads to inequitable outcomes and what that meant to people on the other side of that uh, parole conversation and so on. And I was like, oh, this is real. We're having impact even a year in at scale. So this is completely feasible. And I left myself open to be wrong every single time, right? RiseKid comes and then, you know, we had a discussion about RiseKid and we continue on their pursuit of expansion. And they always have, you know, every team has challenges. But when they start saying, oh man, we're seeing candidate success. We're helping to overcome barriers. We're continuing to productize it, but let me show you the individual testimonials. This is what can be achieved at scale if we're successful in our mission. West 10, they are bringing female entrepreneurs who have been displaced dis uh, at an absurd rate during COVID compared to men. And many have actually gone into the home business space. And when we see these businesses thrive on West 10, do well in evolving their product, collaborate with other home-based entrepreneurs in their market, start to build more B2B relationships, even realtors, law firms, and so on. And we're helping to facilitate that thinking or in some ways helping to lend our network and see those connections come alive. And more importantly, see our network of partners say, wow, I find this credible. I want to engage. I want to support these organizations. It starts to show we're not just doing it ourselves. We as a community are doing it. And the odds, we're burning on the odds of failure. And I love that. Um, and I'm still, you know, going to every one of these check-in conversations with our portfolio companies with, oh, man, is this the day that the shoe is going to drop? about some major challenge they are going to have that we haven't discussed and it's going to put our entire view of the what we do to question we haven't had that yet um, and i think what they do how they do it their passion for it and really their ability to be laser focused on people they want to serve and keep moving on those margins um, that is what ultimately gives me continued confidence. And what I would ultimately say as well, um, type of indication that it seems to be we're making incremental progress in the right direction. It's definitely clear that your work's impactful. And I think seeing those sort of steps to that place, you know, seeing the direct impact for individuals. I mean, it's incredible what some of this work does for one life. It's, and then it's amazing to think of the number of lives that can be impacted. So um, I mean, congratulations on on that thus far, and I know there's a lot more of that to come. I congratulations are certainly in the order, but for our founders, I think all I've done, if anything, is come along and try not to be a distraction to their progress, and and try to add fuel to their fire at the right time. Um, but it is super fun to be their cheerleader and supporter throughout all this. Uh, and their respective journeys. Is there an experience from your childhood that showed you the importance of giving back, you know, regardless of which side of it you were on? Ooh. That's, uh, man, that really takes me back. So I grew up in a Catholic church. Well, actually, I grew up in a lot of churches, but um, <laughs> my, uh, my grandmother on my mother's side um, started a Presbyterian church. Um, Gosh, I think it's 1920s, maybe in Korea. 
and it still exists today. Uh, our family members are very involved. And, and funny enough, that wasn't a light bulb moment, actually. I, I attended the church. It was fun. It was a it was a, uh, a gathering of sorts. I really felt maybe giving back when I actually came to U.S. and saw the same institution. In this case, I mean, my aunt here was Catholic, so we went to a Catholic church. But the the support structure that the church afforded us, whether it be, how do I even get around? What classes should you enroll? What are some remedial English classes you could take before school? Um, here's where you should go if you want clarinet lessons, for example, um, and so on. And I'm not sure if at the time if I really appreciated value of giving back. What I realized was value of just helping one another predicated on there are neighbors, right? And now in looking back, I think without that type of social support, I'm not sure if I'd be where I'm at right now. Um, and that has really come to the realization that it is no one big act that that makes a difference in a person's life. It could be an accumulation of many small things. And you, it's hard for me to know what I do is small, good or bad. So um, I think that has been an incredibly important, I guess, period of my life to really value how we can each make a meaningful impact, even though we may not see it in the moment. Um, but hopefully, I mean, that, that addresses some part of your question. I don't know if it does directly. <laughs> no, for sure. I think you learned young, you know, whether it was clear to you at the time or not, how valuable having that community of support is, you know, for you, it was in the church for others. It might be in other places. Um, but just having a supportive community can, can really go a long way. Absolutely. I, I'm curious for you though. I mean, I, I'm, you have strong community. Well, certainly with, you know, you engage with us, you have friends. I met your wife. She's amazing. Um, how have you come to kind of build your community of networks and, and friends and support? Yeah, I appreciate the question. I mean, I grew up in a family that was very active in our local Jewish community in Charleston, um, South Carolina, where I grew up. And um, that certainly set the example for me. You know, we there was always someone in our community that could help regardless of the, the problem or the situation. So somewhat similar to what you explained. And um, I think that just taught me the not only the value of having that support system, but just, you know, kind of how to treat people that are in your, your neck of the woods and your, uh, your neighborhood, whatever it may be. And, um, you know, then I went off to, to college at Boston university and I started to sort of build my own web from there. I feel, you know, I have a lot of people from school that I'm still close with and some that I actually work with as well. Um, and, and that was kind of a, a good start for me in terms of building that community of support and, um, I've gravitated toward people that share my values and, um, you know, that's what landed me, uh, with the stand together community. And I, I try to do that in my everyday life in general. And, um, fortunately that's allowed me to surround myself with some good people and, you know, led me to, to start this podcast on innovators and social impact because I've been fortunate enough to be meeting a lot of them. That's awesome. I, I think in some ways I'm still, I think I came to the realization around the value of informal and formal social connections. And in, I am just scratching the surface on how do we keep acting on that? So I, I might ping you for advice from time to time. 
anytime I, I might need to do the same the other way. Um, so, you know, we talked about the childhood and growing up in the church and um, coming up sort of in your career as you made your way, you know, was there anyone that you considered a mentor? How much time do we have? I, you know what? I shouldn't go down the list. I, I, um, I'm deficient in so many different ways. <laughs> and I feel like <laughs> I say that with complete honesty. I, I feel like when it comes to, I don't know how to have this tough conversation. I have a person to go to, or if I have a really complex family decision, you know, there's a person I go to, you know, I, I've realized over time that, um, at least for me, I really value a lot of different perspectives. So um, from a mentor perspective, I've always sought out feedback, uh, whether we liked it or not. And sometimes, man, you don't want to hear that feedback. But in, you know, over time, you realize, okay, that was probably the, what you needed to hear. Um, so I was, I, there is no one mentor. I, I, I hope to continue to cultivate a, a group of folks that can keep giving me hard feedback around, shouldn't be less direct. Hey, you need to be more direct in that case. Hey, maybe you should be more aggressive in pursuing this opportunity. Maybe you should uh, do so and so. I I hope to keep building because um, I found that learning through a larger group actually allows me to then lean in and help them in similar ways. You know, I, I maybe I think comes through in some of the conversation, whether it be mentorship, whether it be networking, whether it be investing, whether it be constructing portfolio. I'm adopting more and more of an ecosystem mindset, as in how can I seek as breath as large knowledge base as possible in each areas of my deficiency and if i cultivate that is there a way for me to give it back to my community as well that's a, a humble way to look at it you know similarly to how you guys evaluate organizations you know with some humility and how you're open-minded i i find that in this answer as well and that's the best way to do it i mean in creating sort of a network of people you can lean on in certain situations i i feel like i've cultivated that to an extent still working on it um, but that's, it's a really valuable way to go. And I mean, I'm the one asking this mentor question, but yeah, when people tend to ask me, I tend to, to lean on a similar answer that I have certain people I go to for certain things, you know, maybe there's a couple of top level. Um, but I, I really appreciate that perspective. Yeah. I think I, for me, I'll, it'll be an evolving area of professional and personal development. Um, so I, I actually would invite if you have any thoughts or feedback for me at any time send them send them my way yeah i appreciate the openness and certainly we'll do that as you know um and uh you know you, you did ask me the the question about my community and and that type of thing but if you'd like you're welcome to ask me another question at this time well i I have one question actually. Well, Jeff, I, I have a pretty decent understanding. I want to say complete understanding of what you do day in, day out. If you had a chance to press reset and that reset allow you to, to redo any and all things to date in your life, you could have a completely different life, different, what would it be? Or what would be the things you would change differently? If, I'm curious. I mean, I tend to think that the politically correct answer is to say I wouldn't change anything because I, <laughs> I, I like where my life is for the most part. But gosh, in reality, there's so many things I would do differently. I mean, I, I look at life as a constant learning experience and 
I'm the type that jumps into things when I want to do them. And that tends to lead to lots of mistakes for better or worse or worse, but, you know, feel fast. Um, so in terms of specific things that I would change, I mean, having the knowledge I have now, I would go about everything differently. You know, I, I had a restaurant for a couple of years in Chicago and uh, hindsight definitely would change how we operated. I mean, you know, everyone loved our food and our staff. There were some underlying circumstances that, that led to our closure, but man, if I could go back, I would change that a hundred ways. And I think about that a lot. And, you know, having been in the cannabis industry for seven years and seen the roller coaster that it's been, obviously hindsight would lead me to making some different decisions. Um, but I just, in general, I have a lot more perspective on, on some of these things. So, you know, overall, I, I like to think that the mistakes and the failures lead to the to the plus sides too. You know, they all inform the successes. So it's hard to pick something that I would specifically change because I don't know the, you know, sort of butterfly effect of that. Um, and I, I'm in I, a I pretty like good the... place. <laughs> I agree. I mean, I, I like the idea. I, I contemplate, I, as you already kind of mentioned, I was like, I wonder what it would be like if you get to live an entire life press mulligan and redo it yeah would it go in a different direction as planned or would all the unforeseen circumstances still lead to a different set of outcomes anyways that that's more esoteric <laughs> conversation there's, yes. i mean there's a lot of film content that that sort of tries to answer that question i really enjoy that type of stuff you know whether it's <laughs> time travel or like messing with people you know messing with the way you think yeah this, this various contents i think it's you know, people, shows that aren't necessarily very specific impact, you know, themes, I think can change the way you think even, and that's, that's enough to make them impactful. So, um, you know, obviously I'm someone that's very passionate about film, um, but it, those are some of the things that get me thinking about this. Oh man, now, now I'm going to be stuck on this, all the permutation issues that come up, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, it, it's... It's why I, I love really good like time travel and space shows, but why yeah. I'm not sure that I want to produce them because I can't imagine being happy with the continuity. And <laughs> I think I realize that uh, every time I try to understand or formulate my understanding of how timelines work, and I realize I'm, I'm, I, I lack the intellectual horsepower <laughs> to be producing anything in remotely close to that realm. <laughs> well... You have a lot of intellectual horsepower, so there must be, it must be very few and far between as uh, in terms of who can know. execute. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, very cool. All right, so so you you asked me about uh, you know what I would change, and this is a similar this question's in a similar vein. You know, I've been asking yeah. every guest if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world. You know, what would it be, and how do you think that change would reverberate? I, I can only change one thing. One thing that you think, you know, ideally would create a domino effect and, you know. Is this one of those things where I can like wish for world peace and call it a day? I'm guessing not. <laughs> I mean, you can give as easy as an, of an answer as you'd like. I mean, I, you know, I, when I'm talking to someone that works very specifically in a specific field, for instance, yeah. drug policy or the reform, they're like, oh, well, I would just fix all the drug laws or whatever, you know, and they're like, this is how it would reverberate. I'm like, all right, well, that's the easy answer. Give me, give me something more interesting. <laughs> I will perhaps give you something a little more meta. I, we've been having some really interesting conversation about this. So I'll, 
as often try to keep my wind up really short. Um, there's been, at least in my personal observation, as advancements in technology, the name of the game isn't to um, standardize. It is actually to personalize every facet of our digital and real life experience, whether it's shopping, whether it's navigation, almost every facet. That's the name of the game. Um, and we're not seeing that type of innovation occur, or I guess that lens being applied to other parts of our segment. We see some of it in healthcare, but not as expressed as uh, we would like. Same thing in education and so on. Um, so I kind of step back and say, hey, why? the thing that I would love to change is for the, the, the leaders and decision makers to think about all of our challenges and evolving innovation prompt. We're never going to have a silver bullet, I think, on any really complex social issues because one solution to your point earlier could create a reverberation that is unintended consequences, right? The only constant we know is things are always gonna change. So therefore I think we as society be adapting to that change with an innovation as a lens. So I think what that means then goes, we as society should think about these problem statements as not, hey, we need to solve the symptom, but what is the ongoing underlying challenges we hope to address? Um, so I, I would say it would be the frame by which individuals and, and key decision measures look in the space, which is to say, I'm not looking for the silver bullet. I'm looking for the evolution that allows us to make it more individualized, bring the solution right to the individual, as opposed to I think this is it. If we get this right, we're done with this issue area. And that type of language and mindset, I think, sets us up to seek convenient solutions that often do not deliver, as opposed to get us in the mindset of, this is all hard work. It's all hands on deck. And we need to keep iterating through this. And it is through that progress, we'll see continued improvements. And that would be, I think, the the overarching challenge. And as part of that, change doesn't require systemic involvement. You could drive change yourself. I, I would think it's the mindset that people view these complex issues with than any one kind of durable change in a particular issue. Yeah, changing the mindset around problems and, and things like that. I think that is something that would certainly reverberate. And, you know, specifically, I'm going to zoom in a little bit on the personalization you were discussing and how, you know, th that could create a much better world. What I've started to notice is, you know, AI is really the key, a big part of the key AI data, a big part of the key to unlocking this personalization. But I've noticed that, you know, and we, we have a lot of data, individual data we could synthesize to create some of this at this point if someone goes into the process of streamlining it. But I've found that people are scared of that. They're scared of AI. They're scared mm. of data. They're scared of their own data. And the problem is there are a lot of bad actors out there. But that said, how am I, you know, me, Joe Citizen, whoever, how am I going to get that personalized experience in these various areas of life if no one can ever trust those synthesizing the data to create it? It's a, wow. I mean, the funny, the tension that I see is there's a conversation in the public realm about desire for privacy, control of data, and so on. But 
we're sharing more and more of our data every day, right? We describe it, but right now, just having several screens open, I am populating several hundreds of databases of various data by, uh, bits of information about what I'm doing, how I'm doing. Maybe not like they know what, where, time and things like that, not why, but they can start to discern a lot of these things when it comes to it. Um, I don't have a strong answer for this, uh, but I think the one observation is the growth of Web3 that starts to think about data ownership is starting to say, hey, great, we've individualized how we thought from a technical experience, or a product experience and so on, but now we created another challenge. We now have data rights issues. People are starting to become more concerned. Does that create another opportunity for us to continue to drive towards bringing solutions closer, more tailored to us and also address it? So I actually think what we see is a market starting to fill that gap in order to overcome those barriers. I would also add that the academic conversations around data rights, ethics, and so on is incredibly informative. And I'm hopeful that, you know, there are going to be meaningful discussions around long-term implications of this. But I would think about this less about as, oh my gosh, if it um, goes live, it is going to have some catastrophic outcome one way or the other. Um, as interesting as a Terminator movie is with AI becoming self-aware and so on, uh, while that is very much a possibility, it's a, it's a possibility that is a greater than zero, right? Um, I think we're moving at a pace that allows us to still figure out those moral and ethical implications as we continue to thoughtfully deploy the tool. Yeah, yeah I agree. And I, I like that you mentioned Web3 in that. I mean, the blockchain is, is such a crucial part of making this work properly. I mean, and I've talked to entrepreneurs out there out there that are looking to solve some of these these issues around personalization, around synthesizing all the data and health points we have around healthcare and things like that. And, um, you know, it's going to take that type of technology to make it in a place where not only it works and people trust it, but where security is much less of a concern than it's been lately. I am excited cautiously optimistic about the progress and trajectory we're on. Uh, but it is undeniable where the where the trend line is. Continued creation of data points, continued integration of data points for greater insight, often done in specific industry verticals with products that are tailored in that environment, whether it be health and e-commerce and so on. And there, are, there have been attempts and there will likely be more attempts in the future to break down cross industry silos where you could imagine one day I, a person being able to curate all of their digital footprint across every environment, potentially, and have ownership rights and controls. So it may address some of those issues in the very near future. It's a world I hope to live in. Uh, and you know, I really appreciate all the time that you've spent here with me. I hope that the listeners are as invigorated as I've been, you know, having our conversation. Um, it's, it's always really exciting when we get into a deep conversation. I, I think it's a fun dynamic and how we both think and, um, you know, excited to continue the conversation. And uh, I'm hoping many people are wondering, you know, what's the best way for them to support you and your impact? It's thoughtful engagement, simply put. 
whether you have an idea about the space, whether you have a new venture you think could be really transformative, um, whether you know somebody that we should talk to, or, you know, Jeff, we talked about it, you just disagree with us. Um, that engagement will be incredibly fulfilling for me personally and for the continuation of our work. Um, I will say underpinning all this is humility and intellectual curiosity. And if you want to engage in any of those dimensions to help us, you know, eat our humble pie by helping us uh, shed a light on an area that we don't know, cool with that. If you have great ideas and want to launch something even and, and want to talk to us, reach out and let's have a discussion. Awesome. Um, well, I'll be sure to include all the relevant links and um, thanks so much for the time. Um, love the work that you guys are doing. Really excited to see how things evolve for, for you and the organization. And um, we will be in touch soon, I'm very sure. Thanks, Jeff. And, and hopefully your future uh, uh, participants can help bring up bring back up the average. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, don't. <laughs> I'm sure no one wants to be the one to come right after you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jeff. Excited. Right. Have a good we one. Continue. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are the Answer. To find out more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com. Thank you.